Welcome to Beyond Your News Feed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. We are now over a week past the 2022 midterm elections, and nearly all the votes have been counted, and most significant races decided. As we record, partisan control of the United States House of Representatives has just been granted to the Republicans, uh, which was something that we've been waiting for for the last few days, but it looks like the Republicans are going to have a, a three or four vote uh, seat majority in the House, and thus a control of that House. The Democrats, of course, are going to have control of the Senate, maybe by a 50-50 split, or depending upon what happens in Georgia, a 51-49 to split advantage over the Republicans. So I thought this is a good time, uh, since most of these races have been settled, to assess the midterm results and their broader implications for American politics and democracy. I brought back our Beyond Your New Feed team of election analysts, Professors Matt Gordino and Adam Myers, to offer their expert analysis on what transpired last week and what might happen in American politics as a result. Professor Myers and Guardino, once again, welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be here. Same here. Always a pleasure. That was Matt speaking first and then Adam. Okay. So, no red wave, guys. Uh, all the expectation was that the Republicans were going to sweep. Some Republicans were saying it was going to be a tsunami. But instead, it was a ripple on the seashore. Uh, later on the podcast, I want us to get into some of the details about why uh, the red wave didn't occur. Uh, but before we do that, let's, let's talk about some of the key results uh, uh, in the Senate, the House, and then and, and particularly statewide races, which I thought were particularly interesting this time. So let's start with the Senate. Uh, one of you want to start out talking about your favorite Senate race this time? Oh, well, there are so many, it's it's hard to pick just one. I mean, I think the Fetterman-Oz race probably drew the most national attention, and that one was certainly very interesting. Uh, and uh, the uh, Georgia Senate race, which is obviously still ongoing with this runoff that's scheduled to occur next month, is, was also quite interesting. Um, and of course, you know, we know what the ultimate results of the Senate contest is in terms of control. Democrats will control the Senate. Uh, but whether they control it with a 50-50 margin and, and Vice President Harris casting the tie-breaking vote for Senate control, or whether they'll have a 51-49 margin, which will make Joe Manchin far less relevant in what happens in the Senate next year, that remains to be seen. And also, given the Senate rules, doesn't a 51-vote majority give the majority leader a little more leeway in terms of controlling the floor? It, uh, it does. It also gives the majority party more of a say on, in terms of committees. It gives them a, a slightly higher share of, of committee membership. Right. Uh, and so in, in those ways, it matters as well what happens in Georgia next month. Yeah, we can talk about the implications of the, of the Democratic win. I think there are important things to say there uh, later on. But uh, Matt, uh, you have any other favorite Senate races that so in addition to the ones that Adam mentioned, uh, I was I was interested in, in Ohio um, and I, I in part because I think it, it might say something about 
um, different strategies the Democratic Party might have um, in order to you know, try to win over or win back some Trump voters or uh, possible Trump voters um, and, and, and just a sense of how, how much in play Ohio may be going forward. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Of course, J.D. Vance won that race, um, you know, but by reasonably comfortable margin. Um, but but I, but I think it was an interesting dynamic there. Well, and normally, I mean, in recent years, Ohio has been kind of deeply red, uh, and you would imagine that a Republican would have a very good shot. But but Tim Ryan did run a pretty close race, uh, given that. Uh, in terms of Pennsylvania. The interesting thing there was that Fetterman, uh, in spite of his stroke and obvious communication difficulties, uh, also won rather substantial victory. Uh, Matt uh, and Adam, what do you think did Fetterman's sort of working class persona uh, play a, a role in that? I read that uh, in some of the districts that Trump took in 2020, uh, Fetterman actually uh, did better in terms of votes than Biden had done. Um, yeah, I think that did play a role. I mean, there is evidence that Fetterman outperf- outperformed Biden in, in those areas. Uh, I also think uh, that race hinged upon Dr. Oz's, you know, massive unpopularity in that state. And I think uh, a lot of voters in Pennsylvania, probably the vast bulk of them, uh, voted on the basis of national level partisanship. And so even though uh, Fetterman wasn't a very strong candidate, uh, at least given his stroke. He wasn't a very polished candidate. He wasn't very good on the stump. He wasn't very good in that debate. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I think a lot of Democratic voters in Pennsylvania held their breath and voted for him because the other option was so unpalatable. Right. And there were a couple of Senate races that I think the Republicans thought they could win, uh, but they didn't. Uh, New Hampshire is an example. And uh, more perhaps interesting, Nevada, uh, where uh, uh, the Democratic candidate squeaked to a victory there. Um, I'm interested in Nevada, too, because um, Adam, Adam Laxalt seemed not, though he, though he came out very strongly in support of Trump and Trump campaigned for him, he wasn't necessarily a super MAGA candidate like uh, the, like, like uh, Maggie Hassan's opponent in New Hampshire, or uh, Blake Masters in Arizona, who was running against uh, uh, Kelly. Um, and any comments on the Nevada race before we move on? I mean, I think what's noteworthy in Nevada is that uh, at the same time as uh, Senator Cortez Masto was reelected, uh, Nevadans ousted their incumbent Democratic governor. Uh, and so there was definitely some split ticket voting going on in Nevada. And it's not entirely clear to me what that was all about. Um, but I think even though Laxalt did try to distance himself from Trump and from t- Trump's endorsement over the course of the campaign, uh, I think he was still marked in the eyes of many Nevadans. Um, and that did end up hurting him. I'm not sure if that's uh, you know, the, the most important explanation for what occurred there, but I think it had a role. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on then talk a little bit about house races. Any particular ones that were significant? Certainly the three New York districts uh, come to mind as, as critical uh, in this election. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, there were about 60 competitive house races across the country, and every one of those is worth the same amount in terms of the battle for, for control of the house, right? So, and so, you know, going, going through them one by one would take a long time. Uh, the, those house races in New York that you referred to, uh, Bill, I think were extremely important. It, it, they may... We'll see what happens after all the numbers are in and all the races have been called. But uh, the fact that many of those House races in New York broke the Republicans' way may end up accounting for Republicans' House majority. Um, and this is a very kind of mystifying thing, actually. Republicans did unusually well in New York State this year. Uh, they also did unusually or surprisingly well compared to the rest of the country in Florida. Um, in other states, Democrats did much better than they ordinarily do. It seems like there were a lot of state-specific effects this year, and we're just beginning to understand why. I mean, I, I am not very plugged into New York politics, but the, I guess the current hot take is that uh, the, the, up, the upsurge in uh, crime, violent crime in the New York City area, in the New York City suburbs, helped a lot of these uh, Republican congressional candidates, but but I don't know the extent to which that's true. Well, it's certainly the case that Republican candidates thought that the upsurge in, well, in New York City, it's basically the murder rate is what's really gone up, and and they certainly used that a lot in their ads. So, so they seem to think that was a winning issue for them. Matt? So one thing, being a, a New Yorker, um, my native New Yorker myself, one thing that's really important to understand about New York state politics is that there is a serious sort of regional or rural-urban divide, and it's it's only been increasing during the Trump years, so to speak. And, you know, I haven't looked at the numbers specifically at the congressional district level, but in terms of, um, you know, outside of New York City itself and some of the kind of core metropolitan areas upstate it's increasingly just you know completely red country and and it's interesting because i don't think that makes new york unique but i do think that it it created a situation where not to move on from the house but the the, the gubernatorial race there was very much in question um and and given the extremity of the republican candidate that was kind of sort of shocking to me, right, that it would be, um, of course, uh, Kathy Hochul won. Um, but I think it, it says something about, you know, maybe the, the rural-urban divide, right? Um, and, and also, you know, some of the suburbs um, as well. So, Well, that really resonates here in Rhode Island because I think what you just described also describes, in, in, a, in, a, in a certain way, Rhode Island, the second congressional district, which is the more rural uh, and you know, exurban district in in Rhode Island was uh, in fact competitive this time, and a lot of people thought, uh, even the esteemed political analyst Adam Myers suggested that that the Republicans might very likely win the second district. Well, that that turned out to be the case, right, Adam? Yeah, well, uh, let me just correct you, Bill. I suggested that it was a possibility, but I don't think I was on record in the okay. final weeks of the campaign um, as indicating that Fung would win. Uh, and uh, I will say this, a lot of people did think Fung would win, right? And in fact, some of the major, major rating agencies uh, and handicappers had that race uh, categorized as lean Republican. Um, going into last week's election. 
but you know, I think what basically happened is the Democrats, when they saw that Magaziner was vulnerable, uh, they came in with a ton of national money, which effectively reminded Democratic-leaning voters in the district. And it is a primarily, though not overwhelmingly, Democratic district. I mean, this is Rhode Island after all. I think a lot of those voters were reminded about the importance of this race for control of the House. Um, I think a lot of Magaziner's attacks uh, against Fung um, in regards to particularly Social Security were effective. And, and, and those kind of late-breaking changes in the race were what, ma- were what made the difference. Yeah. Uh, but to get back to Matt's point, uh, the second district does have features like he was describing in New York of, of uh, there are quite a few Trump voters. Oh, 100%. I mean, the most Republican parts of New England are in the second district, right? All of those towns on Rhode Island's western border, uh, in some cases, those towns voted two to one for Trump. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about governors. Uh, The Democrats have a very good night in most gubernatorial races, right? Uh, Some exceptions like Nevada, but uh, they pretty much swept the important background. uh, battlegrounds. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, it was a remarkable night for Democratic governors, again, with the exception of Nevada. I think uh, Democratic governors, particularly in states where, uh, you know, having a Republican governor would have meant that a very restrictive abortion law would almost certainly have um, become in place in those states, places like Michigan or Wisconsin. I think the Democratic candidates for governor very successfully leveraged the abortion issue. And and that, and, and of course, in Michigan, there was also a referendum on the ballot uh, constitutionalizing a right to abortion. Um, and so I think in a lot of those races, the abortion issue did make the difference. Uh, but just as a general matter, I think uh, Democratic gubernatorial candidates uh, were pretty good um, just on the stump across the country. One exception might be the, uh, the race in Arizona, where uh, you know the the, uh, the the Republican candidate uh, was a Trumpian election denier who was you know uh, you know vi- as a former TV anchorwoman was very very was a very effective campaigner, and the Democratic candidate was lackluster in a variety of ways. But in that particular race, I think. Despite her political skills, Carrie Lake, the Republican candidate, was just too extreme for Arizona voters, and that's why the Democratic candidate won. Yeah, though, though uh, her loss was quite narrow. I mean, there were just a few thousand votes that separated her and the the, the Democrat. So it was uh, it was very close. Well, uh, to get back to Michigan, I mean, it, it seems that that referendum really uh, really did focus voters on the abortion issue. Uh, the, in Michigan, they they flip both houses of the legislature? They did. And Michigan state government will now be uh, controlled by Democrats for the first time in over four decades. This is a really remarkable achievement for Democrats in that state. Right. I would say with a lot of these races, um, in terms of the gubernatorial and and the statewide races in general, it it had a, a lot more to do with the Republican candidate and their liabilities than with the Democratic candidate and their strengths and or policy differences. So I think that, you know, um, just, you know, Arizona is a good example. I mean, you know, uh, Lake ran a very effective campaign, but it was very clear, you know, in terms of election denialism, in terms of, you know, uh, the, the threat to democracy and 
and other sort of extreme positions, right, where she stood. And uh, and I think that was the case for many gubernatorial candidates, including in, again, places that are not at all considered swing states like New York. I mean, the New York Republican candidate was, you know, uh, on clearly on record as, you know, being an, um, an election denier um, and, and cl- closely allied with Trump. Um, and I think that that, in addition to abortion itself as a specific issue, really turned off a lot of um, otherwise, you know, independents or, or, or moderates, right, um, and, and push those states in, in the other direction. Um, I would say not to get too far ahead of things, but we have to then ask, well, what does this mean for the future and what kind of lessons will Democrats, meaning Democratic Party leaders, take out of these results? And I think that it's an open question and one that's going to have big implications. Well, Matt, I think you've given us a little segue here uh, into this uh, bigger question and perhaps more political science analysis of how can we explain that the red wave didn't occur? We know that in Midterm elections, typically uh, the, the party that controls the presidency doesn't do well, particularly in the first midterm after the presidential election. That's kind of a law of political science, right? So that's one of the reasons that people were expecting the Republicans to do quite well. Uh, and then uh, a lot of other <clears throat> factors like high inflation, Biden's relatively low approval ratings, concerns across the country about uh, rising crime in certain areas, uh, all that suggested that, well, maybe there would be a, you know, red tsunami. The Republicans would do enormously well. Maybe take uh, 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 of those 60 contested seats, maybe win half or more of them. Right, Adam? So, but it didn't happen. So how can we account for that? And maybe one place to begin is the whole issue of of election denialism. Uh, so many candidates in Republican society were denying the election. Uh, to what extent do you guys think that was a major factor in the, the, the lack of a red wave? So um, in terms of the House and, and Senate, um, I'm not sure exactly. I think it was a significant factor. Um, but I think that uh, it was cer- certainly a talking point among Demo- Democrats, right, in terms of really driving home the point that many of these candidates, either very clearly and directly or by implication because of their allyship with Trump, were threats to democracy. And, you know, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what the exit polling showed, but I do think that was a significant concern in many of these places. And, and, and I think potentially driving turnout, you know, and so, you know, uh, maybe some folks who otherwise might sit out um, a midterm election were energized right around issues like that. And again, that's much more, it's partly about democratic strategy, but it's a lot more about the quality or nature of the Republican candidates. Um, the other thing I would say about is, you know, sleepy, usually sleepy races like state secretary of state turned out to be really important, um, this year because of the administration of elections and the potential that some election deniers and Trump allies could win some of those races and then potentially have an effect on, you know, how the how how election administration goes. And um, in virtually all cases, they were soundly defeated. Right. And so I think that says something important, too. I largely agree. But I would say this. I 
I haven't seen any evidence from survey data that suggests that this was a major concern of voters, right? I mean, the whole issue of democracy and election administration and so forth, it's way down the list in terms of the issues that Americans said were the most important problems facing the country this year. I think a lot of these kind of election-denying U.S. Senate candidates were problematic for a whole bunch of other reasons, right? I mean, and, and you know, and so it's not clear to me whether uh, they lost their races because of their stance on election administration or because of other problematic aspects of their candidacy. And if you go down to the U.S. House level, um, there there were many fewer election-denying Republican candidates, and many of those folks still lost. For example, right here in our backyard, Alan Fung was a you know was not an election denier. He called Joe Biden the legitimately elected president of the U.S. Um, he didn't sound any of those Trumpian notes, and he lost. Right. Uh, and so I, my sense is that this whole, uh, you know, perceptions of threats to democracy was not as much of a factor uh, for voters in terms of their decisions as were other factors. But I will say this, um, regarding the Secretary of State races that Matt mentioned, um, I think the fact that election-denying candidates kind of routinely and, over, and almost, I think, in, universally lost has a lot to do with the fact that there were major Democratic, and in some cases not Democratic, in some cases Republican donors that swooped into those races and funded uh, the uh, Democratic candidates who were committed to, you know, uh, democracy um, at very high levels. Um, I read where uh, one statistic that suggests that um, in those high-profile Secretary of State races, the Democrats outspent the election-denying Republicans 57 to 1 in terms of television advertising, right? And so they enjoyed a massive financial advantage because I think mm. there's a lot of wealthy donors in this country who do uh, care about the democratic process and funded those candidates. Just to follow up on what Adam said, I think that's very important, and I think it, it, it has a, um, an important connection to kind of media and communication in general in some of these statewide races because... You know, all of these, all midterm elections, um, with the exception of, you know, a few like very, very high profile, say, Senate races, um, it tend to be low information elections um, and tend to receive very little um, and and not very uh, deep media coverage in most cases. But I think that one thing we know from political science research and political communication is that um, when candidates or other groups spend a lot on advertising and make themselves known right and their positions known through that um then not only can that have a, a, an effect on voters right but it can have an indirect effect on media coverage so advertising and advertising spending often drives media coverage and so i would i would be surprised if a lot of the spending that adam talked about didn't also really kind of uh you know encourage media including even local media in some of these states to um you know, just make these, you know, races a higher, a higher profile, right? Um, and, and, you know, even if it wasn't necessarily investigative reporting, right, just again, reminding voters, right, of these races, and, and what the implications might be of electing the Republican. Yeah, Matt, and I think for journalists, the, all the discussion of threats to democracy, of election denialism, uh, I'm interested also in how the, the election denialism uh, really aided the attempts by a lot of Democrats to portray the Republicans as radical uh, 
Biden at the, in the end calling some Republicans MAGA Republicans and trying to distinguish MAGA Republicans from good Republicans, uh, uh, that probably gave journalists a, a nice narrative uh, in this election, which they usually don't have in midterms. That was an interesting one, the Biden's move, rhetorical move that you mentioned, Bill, because it connected MAGA with Republicans as well, like in terms of just associating in voters' minds, right? Reminding that them, even even though he's trying to make this kind of distinction, right, there are kind of quote-unquote good Republicans and bad Republicans, I think it might have, in, in some cases, cemented the connection, oddly enough, if that makes sense. And so, you know, Adam is the state politics expert and definitely Rhode Island politics expert among the two of us by far, but you mentioned the um, the the race with Fung here, right? And so, you know, regardless of how closely allied, um, you know, he might have been with, you know, some of these claims, right, of election denialism, it was easier to paint a candidate like him as um, part and parcel, right? Uh, and in fact, you know, I'd like to talk more about this at some point, but, you know, the Republican, major Republican elites um, have been you know, through their own behavior, right, and words tied themselves, right, um, to Trump and to, uh, in some cases, to election denialism. And that may have caused candidates who personally aren't really on board with that to suffer, if that makes sense. And I think that that all gets cycled through the media, right, which is important. Right. Well, you want to say some more about those elites, Matt, since you brought it up? Well... Let's see where do I start here? I mean, I think it 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 it's interesting that you know now we're seeing right some you know a bit greater number of Republican elites coming out and sort of blaming Trump and or Trump's baggage right for not having the red wave right and for some of these losses, and so I think that's interesting, um, but you know one would think that this was a great opportunity for, you know, before the election, right, for some of these Republicans who, you know, maybe are, are said to privately, you know, not like Trump, not like what he stands for, but publicly have stood behind him, right, all these years to come out, right, and actually step out and make a clear case, right, of, of why, you know, Trump and Trumpism is bad for democracy in the country. And, and uh, but that didn't lar- largely, I don't think, happen. Um, I mean, if we just think about the context, Jan- the January insurrection, um, all of the uh, increasing legal troubles that Trump has gotten uh, into, certainly the documents uh, case from Mar-a-Lago, um, and, and all of that, right, is, is sort of like, uh, it, this was sort of an opportunity, right? And I think that, you know, if more Republican elites had come out, right, I think we would have seen right, even less of a red wave, right, if that makes sense. Um, Some of the criticisms I see now, right, um, are more stylistic and more and less substantive as well, which I think is important, right? Um, You know, we don't like, you know, uh, somebody, you know, running their mouth off like Trump did and, 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 and also strategic. Now, I, you know, blaming again, you know, Trump is not good for the party strategically, right? which is arguably the case, but one might think that in a time as perilous for, for democracy that, as we're in right now, I would argue that, you know, a greater number of high profile Republican elite, elites by now would have been making more fundamental criticisms of Trump and Trumpism. Uh, 
And that might have driven some voters or a greater number of voters, even Republicans, to I, not necessarily vote for the Democrat in some of these races, but, you know, stay home. Right. Uh, you know, in or, or maybe vote, you know, uh, a third party candidate or something like that. Um, I think that the, the 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 sort of Trump base, right, quote unquote, is still showed up right in this election. And, you know, that has, uh, I think, ominous um, science going forward. But uh, one, one of the interesting things uh, we, we were talking about the media coverage and the like, uh, turnout was a high again in this midterm. Uh, I remember all the years I taught American government, I routinely would tell my classes, oh, in midterm election, a third of the eligible electorate will turn out. And now, since 2018, we've gotten almost half. Uh, the turnout was something like 47%, which is a little bit down from 2018, but still historically high. Uh, again, uh, how can we account for that, do you think? Listen, I think we're entering or we've entered an era of unusually high turnout in American elections overall, right? I mean, and the 2020 presidential election was the highest turnout presidential election in modern American history. You have to go back to the 19th century uh, to find an election with higher turnout among eligible voters. And so, uh, you know, I, I th we are going to have to update a lot of our assumptions about the way American politics works. Uh, given these high turnout levels, which are affecting both presidential elections, obviously, where turnout is, is about 20 percentage points higher than in midterms, but it's also affecting midterms. And uh, listen, we still have a ways to go, right? I mean, uh, turnout in the uh, 2020 presidential election, I think it ended up being 68, 69%. That still leaves 30% of eligible voters in this country who did not turn out, right? So, And we're still far below other advanced democracies in terms of our turnout levels, but we've certainly improved over the past six, 10 years. And I would say that's, that's good for American democracy. And might be a reflection of the increased polarization and political conflict. That is, people pay attention when there's conflict. They pay attention, the, the media pays attention when there's conflict and that, uh, that may motivate people. And of course, we know about negative partisanship people fearing the other party so much is a great stimulus to get them to go go to the polls. And that certainly uh, was a factor in, in this election. Uh, wh while we're on that, though, uh, one thing that I find curious is that I, I'm wondering uh, what you think about this. I, I, and this is a just kind of a, a off-the-cuff hypothesis. Uh, could it be that uh, the Republicans have been hurting themselves with all the election denialism? That is, is it the case that in some of these, I'm thinking about Arizona, for example, could it be that in close races, uh, Republicans are losing uh, because some of their own supporters don't show up at the polls because they think that elections are rigged? Uh, any, I, I have no evidence for that, but uh, I'm just speculating. I think it's certainly plausible. Um, again, I don't. I also don't have any kind of any data that might back that up, but it's certainly logically plausible. And I think you know, if we go back to um, the last election, the 2020, the the Georgia runoff, right? And I think that there was a, certainly a lot of concern, right, that a lot of that you know um, electoral election fraud rhetoric might 
you know, reduce, right, Republican turnout, especially in the runoff, right? And so, um, you know, I, I think it certainly could be a factor in many of these places. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about uh, the election denialism as, as part of why there wasn't a wave. We've talked about media coverage and the like. What are some other factors? I just want to go back real quickly to something that, that Adam was talking about having to do with turnout, right, and the differences between midterm and, and, and presidential election turnout, right? I, I would generally agree that we probably are entering that era of higher turnout, right, for all the kinds of reasons that we've talked about. Um, I do wonder, though, whether part of it might be an artifact of, of Trump and the sort of aftermath or you know all of the all of the kind of uh the baggage right um that has come with trump and trumpism particularly not only among supporters but amongst opponents so for here i'm thinking about youth turnout and so i remember teaching a campaign uh communication class during the 2018 midterms and you know teaching kind of like you were talking about bill you know talk about generally speaking right turnout is real low in these elections and especially youth turnout right lo and behold right we had the highest youth turnout in a midterm in you know however long uh, many many decades and this one wasn't quite that high but it was pretty high and i'm wondering you know um how durable that is i think it's going to be fascinating and important because one thing that we know is that from political science research is that like socialization matters so if you are politically socialized if you come of age politically in a time of heavy political conflict where there are are maybe a couple of key events or issues that really grab right your generation's um attention that oftentimes those um that not only increases turnout in the moment among young voters but can have long-lasting effects in other words you know uh it might you know help that this higher turnout right to become um you know uh, durable even after, assuming it does, Trumpism fades from the scene, if that makes sense. Right. That's fascinating. So that Donald Trump may not, not only has been a loser in the last three elections, has not helped the Republicans win, but uh, he may have enduring and long-lasting damage, may have done enduring and long-lasting damage to the Republican Party uh, because of these generational effects. Yeah, you know, I've wondered that too. Uh, and well, it, it's tricky, right? Because as Matt pointed out, you know, people who are, you know, in their formative years or who have spent their formative years uh, living through, you know, the Donald Trump presidency and its aftermath, they will certainly be shaped by all of these events that have transpired. But it's important to remember Donald Trump did win 74 million votes in 2020, right? He was the second highest presidential vote-getter in all of American history. The only person who surpassed him was Joe Biden in 2020. So there have been a lot of Donald Trump supporters, and he did bring a lot of people into the Republican Party. And I, I'm certain that uh, a lot of these um, Gen Zers who are uh, becoming politically socialized these days, right, have grown up, many of them, in previously politically disaffected homes who were who's, who, um, whose parents were brought into politics through Trump, right, and who became hardcore Republicans because of their support for Trump. So this could, in some respects, break both ways. Good point. Of that 74 million, there were some young people, right? I am 100% certain of that. It, it could break both ways, not to go too far on this road, but I, I would also just caution that 
to the extent that the Republican Party um, increasingly associates itself with uh, arguably extreme conservative social positions, I think that, you know, that could be a long term deficit for them because of, you know, just changing cultural norms among, you know, folks who are younger. Right. And including not even necessarily hardcore Democratic voters, even independents and many Republicans. Right. So thinking about uh, issues of uh, gender and sexuality. Right. And, and, and that could be, you know, um, even some Trump voters, right, young Trump voters may not necessarily be on board, right, with some of these um, some of these harder core uh, conservative positions. And you could bring in climate too. And climate. Add to that, uh, yeah. and young people are all are much more concerned about climate change for good reason. They're going to be more affected by it than us old people. So uh, the the that that's going to going to feed into the, that same phenomena, uh, Matt. Okay, so what what other facts? Anything political scientists, political science as a bl- discipline can inform us about uh, what went on last week? Yeah, so uh, we talked about this earlier, and I want to put in a plug for, or we talked about this prior to the podcast, I should say. I want to pl- put in a plug for this old theory explaining midterm elections within political science called surge and decline. Uh, and the reason I think this theory matters is because uh, the, I, it's, it's worth underscoring just how unprecedented uh, the results of these midterms were. As we discussed, right, the president's party almost always does poorly in midterms. Uh, and the only exceptions to that rule in the past, as best as I can tell, have been elections where the president is unusually popular. So, for example, in 2002. Right uh, in in the wake of 9/11 and the war on, and the beginning of the war on terror, right? President Bush was very popular, and that helped Republicans pick up seats in the House that year. Same thing with 1998. Um, Bill Clinton was unusually popular that year, thanks to the booming economy, and that is partly why Democrats ended up picking up seats in the House in in that year's midterms. This midterm that we just experienced is really, as best as I can tell, the only uh, midterm on record in modern American history in which uh, the president's party has managed to minimize seat loss in the House and actually pick up seats um, in governorships and and, uh, pick up state legislative chambers and so forth, in spite of the fact that the president is very unpopular, right? Uh, Biden's approval ratings are extremely low. Um, and so I feel as though for something this unprecedented, we need, we need a more kind of macro structural explanation, right? In other words, uh, the things we've been talking about, you know, election denialism, abortion, and so forth, I think they all mattered, but there's, there's gotta, there's some, there needs to be something more. Um, and so that's where I think this surge and decline theory comes in. And this is an old theory. It goes back to the 1950s because it's been for this long <laughs> that political scientists have been observing this pattern of a president's party doing poorly in the midterms. And essentially what, what surge and decline theory holds is that if you want to understand this pattern, you have to link it to the, uh, in, in midterms, you have to link it to the previous presidential elections. Right? So the idea here is that during a presidential election, the party of the winning presidential candidate enjoys a surge of support, right? A surge of support above and beyond its normal level of support in the electorate, right? Millions of people who don't usually vote or who usually vote for the other party come to the polls to cast ballot for their preferred presidential candidate. Um, and that the winning presidential candidate 
has coattails, right? He carries uh, candidates down ballot into office who probably wouldn't have otherwise gotten in, right? Uh, candidates for U.S. House, candidates for state legislature, and so forth. Um, and so it's because of that surge in support, right, that uh, candidates of a president's party do very well down ballot. But then what, what happens two years later? Well, the president, the, the winning presidential candidate is now is not on the ballot now, right? On top of that, enthusiasm for him um, has declined precipitously. But all of those folks who rode into office on his coattails, most of them, right, U.S. House members, state legislators, and so forth, they have to run again. They have to run without that boost in support that, that uh, they got two years earlier. And so consequently, they lose. So how does this theory help explain what happened this year? Well, again, this theory would hold that if we're going to understand 2022, we have to link it back to 2020. And what was really unusual about, I mean, there were a lot of things that were unusual about the 2020 presidential election, but perhaps uh, the most unusual thing about the 2020 presidential election is that this boost in support that usually only the winning party's candidate gets, in 2020, both parties enjoyed a huge boost in support. As I mentioned earlier, it was an incredibly high turnout election. And Donald Trump, in spite of the fact that he lost, got more votes than any other presidential candidate in American history, except Joe Biden in 2020, right? And so both candidate, both parties enjoyed a huge surge in 2020, right? Whereas usually only the winning party presidential candidate would. And so as a result, this year, I think both parties uh, experienced a precipitous decline. And that decline in support balance the decline in support for the Democrats and the decline in support for the Republicans kind of balanced uh, each other out, right? And, and again, specifically looking at presidential coattails, remember when Biden uh, won in 2020, Democrats lost 14 seats in the U.S. House, right? So uh, Biden enjoyed no coattails. And so I think I'm not, this, this, this uh, surge in decline theory doesn't explain everything, uh, not at all. But I think as a general explanation of what happened, it works remarkably well. Well, I'm thinking on the Republican side, perhaps it, it was even more important. The fact that Trump wasn't on the ballot uh, may have meant that some of his ardent supporters who are tied completely to him personally, not to their party, uh, were not enthusiastic and may not have turned out or, or may have you know, voted for a Democrat because uh, Trump wasn't there. You know, uh, uh, although I guess uh, uh, one one contrary factor, Adam, might be that in a lot of ways Trump still was on the ballot. That is, there was a lot of uh, he 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 certainly tried to put himself in the ballot by holding rallies, and there was a lot of discussion about, and of course. We've already discussed how people uh, were identified as being, you know, Trump candidates. They identified themselves. So, so I don't know. It's it's interesting. Uh, I guess I'm not ready to embrace it wholly at this point. <laughs> yeah, to follow up on what Bill said, I, th I think that you know we can't we we can't recall another midterm election. I would argue in which the losing presidential candidate from the previous presidential election has been able to has played such a huge role right in terms both in terms of you know uh potentially driving right some republican supporters to the polls but also as a foil 
for democratic campaign strategy in this case, right? And the ways in which, you know, a losing presidential candidate could be so high profile and so important, right, top of people's minds that, um, you know, and, and, and that's connected, I think, to some of the qual candidate quality issues, for lack of a better term, that I think the Republicans had, especially in some of the Senate races. In other words, some of these candidates who were very closely allied with Trump had many liabilities as candidates, right, in terms of their background, their personality, their style and other elements. Right. And I think that, um, you know, maybe that helps to explain, again, you know, some Republicans just not pulling that lever right for those Republican candidates. Um, and, and also, you know, maybe a few folks in the middle, right, who might have been otherwise been voting Republican because of inflation, because of right, you know, furious about rising crime, right, as Bill said earlier, just not being able to stomach right voting for just for example, um, uh, uh, Herschel Walker, right. So um, we're in a very uh, unusual time. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, how how well these older theories, right, end up holding up. I wonder if I could bring up another political science theory. And this is one associated with uh, political scientist John Sides, Alain Vavrek, and now Chris Tazanovich, a new book, a book they just published, came out in September about the 2020 election. And that's this theory that, that uh, for going back to the 1990s, we've, we've, we've been in a political era where the two parties are just so closely are so closely divided that it's neither party is dominant, which is of course unusual. We know in American political history, usually there is one dominant party, and uh, the old thing was one party's the sun, the other's the moon. Uh, that that uh, metaphor. So, but but that's not true. There's no sun party. There's no moon party. You've got two closely divided parties in any election. Uh, either party has a chance of of winning or losing. Uh, they've called this calcification is the word they've used to describe this. Uh, and I'm wondering, in, in the case of this election, uh, could it be that there was no Republican wave because uh, the partisan support for each party is so calcified that a wave just wasn't going to be possible? That there was no way that the Republicans could break through this this deadlock and that there was always going to be a substantial Democratic support. Yeah, I think that is absolutely a part of it. I mean, there's they call it calcification, but other people have given this phenomenon other, ter other uh, terms and so forth. Look, uh, there's been remarkably little movement in the partisan composition of the electorate in this country over the past 20 years. And one of the things that I often tell students to illustrate this point um, is that if you look at the way people voted in 2016, in the 2016 presidential election, which ostensibly seems like such an unusual presidential election, both major parties are nominating highly unusual candidates, right? Democrats are nominating uh, the first female presidential candidate, first female major party presidential candidate. Republicans are nominating Donald Trump. You would think that election would upset traditional voting patterns in all sorts of ways. But the truth of the matter is it didn't, right? Um, the, at the micro level, at the individual level, 
the by far the best predictor of how a person voted for president in 2016 was how they voted for president in 2012, right? 90% of people voted the same way. And the difference in outcome between 2012 and 2016 had everything to do with, a vi- with shifts among a very small number of voters in a small number of states, right? And I think that that basic pattern has continued. It continued in 2020, even, even though turnout went way up, right? The overall partisan composition didn't change all that much. And it continued in 2022. And, and so in large measure, right, I think the reason why all of these structural factors that would seem to have been likely to favor Republicans, right, the the state of the economy, inflation, and so forth, Biden's approval ratings, um, the reason why those things didn't matter is because they're sort of, they, they don't bear upon people's vote choice as much as they used to. Today, the main thing that bears upon people's vote choice is partisanship. Um, and partisanship is pretty sticky. It doesn't change very much. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, Matt, you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I agree with everything that, that Adam said, and I would add that um, I think that we're probably, again, in, in an era and, and will be for the foreseeable future in which really, really large swings in midterm elections are, are just not going to happen, right? Um, certainly, there could have been a much a larger swing for the Republicans, right, this year, um, but you know, this, this idea of, you know, 40, 50, 60 seats, right? It's just for all the reasons that Adam talks about. And I would just add the, the media's role in here a, a little bit as well, because um, uh, because increasingly, especially really hardcore partisans on each side are seeing um, different pictures of the world and different pictures of the political world, right, these days. Um, and there is so much fragmentation in, in news sources. I think that only um, sort of adds to, right, or reinforces, right, this kind of calcification. Because, you know, in order to sort of blame the in-party, right, for bad conditions, one has to connect, right, those conditions in a reasonably accurate way, or at least plausible way, right, to the party in power, right, and then, you know, enforce some kind of accountability, right? And I think that, uh, that, we can't necessarily count on that dynamic occurring in the way that it did in a more consistent way decades ago. Right. And especially in, in the way that people's perceptions of issues are, are influenced by their partisanship. Right. Yeah. So that so the Democrats think the economy is doing well. Republicans think it's terrible, uh, you know, because of who's in the White House. And and it and, and so that's partisanship, partisanship all the way down. Yeah. In, a, in a sense. And if you think about this election, we just had this big election, but if you think about it, have things, in partisan in partisan terms, things haven't changed all that much. We still have a 50-50 Senate. Democrats still in control. The control of the House is switched, but the, Repub- the Democrats in the last House controlled it by just a handful of seats. The Republicans are going to have control by just a handful of seats in this this. Uh, 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 next two years uh, so you know in many ways we have these elections and things stay pretty much the same although things are different uh, the Republicans are going to control the house uh, let's just kind of finish off here by talking about uh, what happens now uh, what can we expect over the next few months in our politics I, one thing I would expect is you know increasing um, uh, gridlock and stalemate, right, from a policy perspective. Um, 
because of these narrow margins and also because with the Republicans controlling the House, there will be a slew of investigations launched into into President Biden and the Biden administration um, and which, you know, both of which will sort of take, you know, will uh, help to stymie, right, any policy momentum that the administration might have. And I would say that strategically speaking, all that's going to be very bad for the Democrats, despite the fact that they did much better than expected in the midterms. Um, because, you know, uh, and this is, I'll just, I, I wanted to talk briefly about what lessons the Democrats might take out of this. And one of my, I guess I'll just say fears, right, uh, that I have about this is that Democratic elites, many of them might take the lesson from this that if we just run against Trump and against Trumpism and against, quote unquote, extremism um, and we run kind of these sort of negative campaigns, right, we're not the other folks, then we can, you know, uh, we can win. Right. And so I think that's a really dangerous message. And, you know, without, you know, having more constructive policy agenda, especially one around economic issues, I think is it's going to be a problem for the Democrats. And if they can't do anything legislatively right in those areas in the next two years to look to point back at right in, in the next election, then that's um, problematic potentially, because I think that, um, you know, certainly if, you know, Trump, for example, could very well win the next, next presidential election, despite some of the, you know, uh, the negatives, right, that came with him and his candidates this time. Yeah, I I pretty much agree with everything Matt said. If if I could summarize my view about what's going to be happening in the next two years on Capitol Hill, um, it would be as follows. Um, the House is going to focus on investigations and the Senate is going to focus on confirmations, right? I mean, the, <laughs> the, uh, the House, uh, I think it's pretty clear with this Republican majority, um, will be putting a lot of its energy into investigating the Biden administration. And I think that's particularly because, A, first of all, I'm, I'm, Republicans don't have a coherent policy agenda that they, will, that they would try to advance through the House at this point. Uh, second of all, Republicans are internally divided, right? And um, as we saw yesterday, right, there's a significant faction within the House Republican Caucus which um, does not like the current House leadership, does not like, um, I guess, Speaker to be uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, and and it's going to be very difficult for McCarthy and the rest of the Republican leadership in the House to balance the demands of that faction with the the bulk of uh, their its membership. And my expectation is, in an effort to keep votes off the House floor that will split the Republican Party, there's just not going to be a lot of action on policy coming out of the House entire at all. Um, and in the Senate, again, I think um, there's going to be more of a policy focus, but there's obviously a limited amount that's, that the Senate can do, given that the House is, is controlled by uh, Republicans or will be controlled by Republicans. And so my expectation would be that a large part of the Senate's focus will be on pushing through all of these uh, judicial nominees that uh, Biden is going to put forward to the lower federal courts in an effort to catch up with uh, all with what Republicans were able to do in the four years that Trump was president, right? Uh, many, many uh, federal judges were confirmed during those four years, and playing catch-up is a major priority of Democrats. Um, and now that they have kept control of the Senate, right, which is crucial in the judicial confirmation process, they're going to be able to do that. 
the only I agree with everything you both said. The only exception to all this are is uh, is spending bills, spending legislation, which has to be passed uh, somehow. Uh, of course, there's the threat that the Republicans have put out of of refusing to raise the debt ceiling. Now, it may be that the Democrats will be able to to get rid of that threat by raising the debt ceiling before in this lame duck session. Uh, there's been some talk of that, only I'm not, it's not clear to me that there is a real effort underway to do that. Uh, but if they don't raise the debt ceiling, the, the debt ceiling, and for our listeners, the debt ceiling is this ridiculous artificial uh, uh, requirement that periodically the Congress has to vote to raise the so-called debt ceiling, even though uh, it has nothing to do with the amount of debt that's actually been issued. Uh, but anyway, uh, the Republicans say they aren't. And, but, if, but if the debt ceiling isn't raised, uh, the Treasury uh, is, is not going to be able to sell Treasury bonds. It creates uh, essentially a worldwide fiscal, uh, a worldwide monetary crisis uh, if that doesn't happen. Uh, so um, there might be a lot of fighting about that. But even if uh, the, the raising the debt limit problem is eliminated by raising it before the Republicans take control of the House, uh, there are the routine uh, you know, annual budgeting uh, spending bills where the Republicans can uh, you know, refuse to agree to spending. Uh, Though I wonder if the divisions of the Republican Party might make that problem a bit easier for the Democrats. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So I should preface this by saying I have no idea what's going to happen. But my, if I had to guess, I think we're not going to see the same level of partisan brinksmanship over budgetary issues as we saw, for example, in you know those years of the Obama presidency after Republicans took control of the House for the very reason that you just laid out, Bill. Um, I think that Republicans now under the Republican leadership now understands that you know um, holding the debt ceiling hostage, holding the federal budget hostage, causing these government shutdowns um, is not a winning strategy for them. And I I don't think a majority of the House Republican Caucus, the incoming House Republican Caucus, would disagree. There are these thirty six or so members of the Freedom Caucus um, that clearly want to play those kinds of games. But my guess is that Kevin McCarthy is going to be able to cobble together, um, you know, a, 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 a winning vote for passing continuing resolutions and so forth with most Republicans and some Democrats on board. Um, and so uh, I don't know, but my guess is we're just not going to see a replay of what we saw in the Obama years on that, in, on that matter. I think you're right about that, Adam. I would agree. I think that's I also think that's right. But I also just just looking at it sort of, you know, from the 50,000 foot angle for a second, it's fascinating to me that we're even talking about this level of instability and dysfunction. So not only in terms of the integrity of right election rules, things like that, but fiscal issues when you you can anyone imagine, you know, say 30 years ago um, that, you know, there might even be a possibility that partisanship and other factors would be such that that you know the debt ceiling might not be raised right or 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 routine spending bills just simply not get passed right and all the implications that would have for government services it's just it's a mark of the times right yeah and we've we've lived in that world for a while now and it's uh, and that 
you know, maybe that's a consequence, too, of this close partisan divide in the country. That is, things don't get done that need to get done, and normal governance doesn't occur. And that's a whole note of the discussion, which would get into the institutional makeup of our, of our, uh, of, of, of the Constitution and lots of other things. But uh, I th- we'll have to save that for another time. Well, Matt and Adam, thanks for a very interesting conversation. I enjoyed it. Um, I learned some things. Uh, I hope our listeners uh, have too. Uh, and uh, appreciate your excellent insights into all these matters and look forward to having you on again in the future to talk some more about uh, elections and other aspects of American politics. And thanks also to Beyond Your News Feed's student producer, Giovanni Harris, for making our voices sound so melodious. Thanks also for the continued support of the podcast from the Providence College Political Science Department and from Joe Carr and Chris Judge of the Providence College Office of Marketing and Communications. And most of all, thanks to our listeners. Please tell your friends about Beyond Your News Feed.